like uh, because it relates to some friends of mine here this morning. Uh, they know who they are. I won't be able to tell you that this particular uh, answer to the question relates to them, but uh, they'll, they'll know, and uh, that's all that matters. Uh, anyway, uh, the first way you know you're getting old is you, you're, uh, you try to straighten out the wrinkles in your socks and discover you're not wearing any. <laughs> And at the breakfast table, you hear a snap, crackle, pop, but you're not eating cereal. Uh, and when you wake up looking like your driver's license photograph, that's another one. Uh, you and your teeth don't sleep together. Getting lucky, and this is uh, the one that my, uh, you know, secret friends can relate to here. Getting lucky means you found your car in the parking lot. <laughs> Your house catches fire, and the first thing you grab is your Metamucil. And then you wonder how you could ever be over the hill when you don't even remember being on top of it. You know, I heard another good one at, a, at an event. Fiona had a cross-country event at her school the other day, and the coach was there, and he said, you know, I decided how I know that I'd be getting old, and that is... And this is a young guy, he's getting married in January, not much older than the high school guys, at least from my vantage point. But he said, uh, you know you're getting older, I know I'd be getting old when uh, I would, um, you know, uh, listen to my students' music and not think it's music. He said, that's when I know I was getting old. And he said it happened to him the other day. He was going across town, they were listening to the music, the students' music in the car, and it was uh, that music, Dove Step. Some of you know that. Yeah, all you younger guys are going, yeah, I'm not sure. I'd never heard of it before. But I think indeed it is not music, you know. Um, but apparently it's just like techno sounds or computer sounds. And I've never even heard it. Fiona said she'd let me pull it up and so I could hear it sometime. But uh, dubstep is a kind of a current, state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, new genre of music, right? And uh, one that a lot of us may not even know of yet. Uh, it's kind of like other terms. And these terms aren't even that cutting-edge anymore, but iPod or iPad or application, you know, at least our new application of the word application, you know, that's kind of new. And uh, all these new cutting-edge, Kindle, all these new kinds of terms, they're cutting-edge, they're state-of-the-art, they're current, kind of new genre-type things. But if you can fast-forward 2,000 years, I think the Lord's coming back before that, but if you could go 2,000 years, even our current you know, cutting-edge terms like, you know, dubstep, probably no one will ever hear of that in 2,000 years from now. But think of the terms that we've never heard that used to be cutting-edge 2,000 years ago. Now, one of those terms is gospel. It's a term that was very cutting-edge. It was really state-of-the-art. It was 2,000 years ago, you know, a new genre in a sense. And uh, it's a word, though, in our day and age we really don't know that much about, uh, how to use it in a sense. You know, our theme this month is uh, the benefits of the gospel. We can probably use benefit in a sentence, but it's hard to use the word gospel in a sentence. But it actually has a meaning. It's an English word. And it's actually a compound word. Go uh, actually means good. Uh, and uh, spell actually means like a story or uh, a message. So gospel means, you know, good news. You know, I really, you know, enjoyed, uh, you know, 
the good news, the gospel. You know, hey, that was really neat gospel last night, or the good news on, on the radio or the tele- television, on the internet, I should say. And so, um, back then that was the word, and it actually came from an old English word, God spell. God meaning good and spell again meaning message. There used to be a Hollywood uh, play, wasn't there? God spell. And that was based on the gospel of Matthew as I understand. I never saw it. But that's the old English word for gospel. God spell. Another compound word. And that was a direct translation from the Greek. Yo angelion. Uh, and yo means good. And uh, angelion means message. So good message, and an evangelist is someone who shares that good message. And uh, so yo angelion, angel comes from angelion, you know, messenger of God. So good message is this word gospel. And in Paul's day, the reason it was cutting edge back then, and of course he would not use the word gospel, he would have used yo angelion, uh, but there is a person called... Uh, Yo Evangelist. I think it's, uh, I'm not even pronouncing it right, but Yo Evangelistus. Yo Evangelistus. And that was a person who would run from Greek city to Greek city or place to place. And he'd run into the big open area of that city called the Agora. And we know in Acts how Paul reasoned with people in Athens, Agora. And in the middle of the Agora was uh, the Matos, which is a big rock slab, but kind of like a stage, just like this. This is a big wooden slab. He, there's a big rock slab in these agoras. And the evangelists would run up there and stand up and proclaim good news, much like in this photograph I'll show you here. Uh, there's an evangelistist standing on the Bamatos in the agora in Corinth, Greece. And uh, you probably, yeah, I might recognize him. He's standing up giving good news. And uh, it wasn't always good, but just any kind of news is good. Uh, even if it's, hey guys, you know, you, you saw that movie 300? Darius, the guy with the Persians, he's coming this way and he hates our guts. I mean, that would be bad news. But it's good because you needed to hear it. Uh, hey, you know, there's going to be a party Friday night at Papadopoulos' house. You know, this all over there for fun and snacks. Uh, that would be good news. But everybody would run to the Agora and they would love to hear from this evangelistus. And so Paul was trying to pick a word to call his message. You know, up until then there wasn't a word for it per se, you know. But he wanted one word to capture it. He wanted a cutting edge term. He wanted a term that everybody understood, everybody related to, everybody knew. There were no newspapers, of course. There's no radios, televisions, anything like that, right? They had to go to the Agora. They had to listen to the guy on the Bamatos. My guess is Paul stood on that Bamatos and proclaimed this message of his. And he decided to use the word that everybody knew. Yo Evangelista, you know, which is good news. The good news. And the person who gave that good news, everybody knew who that was. So this was a very cutting edge, common word that everybody knew, everybody understood. Paul just put, uh, you know, just put a, uh, an ad, the, the word the in front of it. A definite article in front of it. The gospel. You know, the Yo Evangelista. You know, the good news. And that's where we get this term gospel or good news. And Paul wanted people so badly to understand what this gospel is. 
He really wanted to lay it out from A to Z, and so he wrote a letter. Now, when you and I write a letter, uh, it probably ends up in somebody's trash can pretty quickly. Probably not very many of you have letters from other generations before you, grandparents, parents. You might have a few. But when Paul wrote letters, people gave those letters names, and they lasted for 2,000 years. And one of those letters he wrote explicitly to communicate this gospel, the gospel, the good news, was a letter to some people that lived in Rome. And he calls, that letter is given a name, and that name is Romans. And that's where we turn to today as we look and answer this question about uh, the benefits of the gospel. Because in this letter, Paul begins to anticipate every question someone might have about this gospel message that he's giving his life for. And he opens up and he'll answer the question, you know, what is the gospel? He'll answer the question, why do people need the gospel? And then he'll answer the question, well, what about the Old Testament? How does the gospel now relate to what we taught, were taught in the Old Testament? You know, and then in chapter 5, the whole chapter is, what are the benefits of the gospel? So Paul addresses that also as he lays this letter out to the Romans. And you know, in chapter 1, Paul begins to explain, uh, and by the way, i got to make just a side note, uh, that Bamatos, here's uh, a reference to the Bamatos from this verse in Second Corinthians. Um, I forgot we have a monitor here. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, or Bamatos of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds. Now, Paul wrote to the Corinthians this verse, and judgment seat is that word Bamatos. So when they read that verse from Paul in the letter he wrote them, that Bamatos that I was standing on is what they would have had in mind. Because that Bamatos was the judgment seat where they would give out awards to the athletes, they would give out the news. It was a big, again, center gathering point. Uh, but i got to tell you, too, as I walked up to that Bamatos, I saw something that looked like a big uh, chunk of chewing gum on the side of that Bamatos. It was just a big white circle. And I got a little closer, and I realized it was a chunk of rock that was broken off of the Bamatos. And not only that, it was laying there on the ground. No, I did not have a hammer and chisel. But I did bring that rock back with me. And this is a chunk of the Bamatos of Corinth that, uh, that is referred to here in Second Corinthians chapter 510. Cost a quarter to rub it or, or kiss it or anything like that. But uh, if you want to later on, I can show you that. Um, but anyway, in chapter, in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul begins to... Um, you know, begins to explain uh, the gospel. And in chapter 1 he says, you know, uh, I've been set apart for the gospel. I mean, this is what I'm giving my life to. This is going to be my whole focus for my entire life, is that, uh, advancing this good news. The gospel was foretold, even in ages past. I mean, it's, it's nothing new. Uh, you know, sometimes people can be skeptical of new things. But no, this has been foretold. It's been around for thousands of years. In fact, Genesis chapter 3.15 is the first time we're introduced to the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus, verse 3. Paul was obligated to preach the gospel, 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, verse 17. And the power of the gospel is to save people. It's the, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed to us, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 17 and 18. And so it's really how we're made righteous and how we see God's righteousness is through the gospel itself. 
You know, I'm kind of reminded of a story I read this past week, just a little historical anecdote, but it's kind of interesting to me. Uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, William, it was his only uh, son, and uh, he was the guy that was holding the kite in that kite experiment, his son, William. And, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin was really tight with the king of, of England. He went over as an ambassador. He lived in London. William spent many of his growing up years there. And uh, Benjamin Franklin would try to bridge the colonies with the crown. And uh, as a result of his relationship, the king of England gave his son William uh, a very high influential political position here in the colonies. And uh, as a result, though, uh, his son William became a loyalist. Whereas Benjamin Franklin was a patriot. And of course, Benjamin Franklin later wrote in his life, when he came back from England trying to bridge the colonies with England, he just felt such sadness over this divide in his family. He went straight to his son to try to win him over to the patriotic cause. But his son refused, and they remained unreconciled for the rest of their lives. But he wrote, as an older man, he said, there's no greater sadness in my life that my son has rejected, you know, everything that I stand for. I am really standing to lose my reputation. I'm standing to lose all my possessions. I'm actually, I will be executed for treason if my side fails. And to have my son on the other side of this issue against me, when everything I have is on the line, hurt Benjamin Franklin greatly. I kind of get this feeling that's what Paul is saying here in chapter 1. Everything I have is on the line here with the gospel. I mean, I'm set apart for this message. It's, I value it. It's been foretold from ages past. It's all about Jesus, and I'm obligated to preach it. I'm not ashamed of it. This is something that I'm going to give my whole life to, my possessions, my reputation, yes, my life. And Paul ultimately did give his life for this message, the gospel. And that's how I get the sense of Paul laying it out before the Romans, uh, first here in chapter 1, sharing his commitment and his love for and value of the gospel. And then he continues on with this book of Romans, and he begins, like I said, to answer different questions. And one of the first questions he answers is, why do we need the gospel? And then he answers it uh, given three different groups of people. You know, one are the heathen in Africa, you know, the people that are, are uh, you know, the, the, the people in the far reaches of the world that have no missionaries, no Bible, no prophets, no Old Testament in Paul's day, none of those things. Uh, then there's the moralists who look down on those people, uh, the heathen in Africa will say. And then there's the Jews. Those are the three groups of people he began to address. And so in Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, Paul, and I'm not going to go into great depth in any of this, but in chapter 1 verse 18, after he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he points how each of these three groups need it. Verse 18, But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and all that God made. And they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal powers, divine nature, 
So Paul would say here that they are absolutely without excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. You know, you might ask the question, what about the heathen in Africa who've never heard the message of God? You know, will they be condemned for not hearing that or believing that message that they never heard? The answer is yes. You know, they will. As Paul answers it here, because it says they are without excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Because really, it's not that they will be that they will suffer uh, condemnation for not knowing the truth. Their condemnation comes from rejecting what truth they do know, as little as it is, and that is really not that little. It's the creation around us. Anyone, anywhere in the world can come to the point where they cry out, there is a God and I am in need of this God. I am in need of this Savior. I am a wicked, sinful person. If they see God's attributes. You know, that's what Peter did. When he saw Jesus on the shoreline, he fell at his knees. And Jesus, uh, you know, told him to throw the net on one side of the boat. He brought in all this fish. And then when Peter got up to the, up to the shoreline, he saw it was Jesus. I think he jumped out of the boat and swam there. But he told Jesus, you depart from me, I'm a sinful man. When he saw the attributes of Jesus' divinity. Well, when people sense and see the attributes of God's divinity, the creation around them, we too will fall on our knees if we respond to that truth. And we'll say, God, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, I need you. Everybody can come to that truth. Now, there's two philosophies here. And that is, will then God lead them to, someone to them to share the message of truth with them about Jesus? And then they'll hear the gospel, hear about Jesus, and get saved. That's what happened to Cornelius, you know, one of the centurions. He was a God-fearing man. He responded to the truth God gave him. He cried out to God, and God led, you know, uh, Peter over to Cornelius to share the gospel with him. And he accepted the gospel. He became a Christian. So there's that view and that belief. Some will say, well, no, you don't even need to hear the message if you just cry out to God and respond to that truth. You know, that's enough, and God will save you. And I'm not going to restrict God to one or the other. I, I tend to think there's scriptural basis to say God will lead someone to someone who's responding to the truth they have. But you stand over the city, and on this trip we stood over the city of Cairo. Smiths were there with us, I think. Yes, of course he were. I remember now. No, I'm joking. But uh, that's an inside story there. But we stood over the city of Cairo, and it is hard to imagine. There's a lot of believed people down there that don't know about Jesus. And you know what, though? There's a lot to do. They're called Coptic Christians. And you know the most evangelized country in the world right now with the most, the most number of Christians in it? New Guinea. And you know the continent with the highest proportion of Christians to non-Christians? His Africa. <laughs> the heathen in Africa. Europe is the greatest missionary need now in the world today. You know, anyone in the world, China, my goodness, the church in China is strong. I've had a cousin there 40 years, married a Chinese gal, four kids. He's lived there 40 years as a missionary. And uh, Steve Brannon is his name. And again, the underground church there is huge. Uh, we have some churches there too, you know, that uh, we could tell you where they are, but they I'd have to kill you. That's why I don't ask. I don't want to die, you know, so I don't even know where they are. I just keep hearing that they're there, so I'm, I'm good enough with that. But it is true, there's Christians everywhere responding to God's truth, because God put it in their hearts. 
And uh, there are Christians everywhere. And I trust God for this. So Paul addresses that group of people. But then in chapter 2, he hits the second group. You may be saying what terrible people you have been talking about. These heathen in Africa, I'll say. But you are just as bad. You have no excuse, you moralists. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself where you do the very same things that they do. And we know that God in His justice will punish anyone who does such things. Do you think that God will judge and condemn others for doing uh, them and not judge you when you do them too? Don't you realize how kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Or don't you care? Can't you see how the kind... He has been in giving you time to turn from your sins. That's what Paul writes to these other groups, these moralists. They're not necessarily Jews, but but guys like Cornelius, you know, try to live upright lives. And then he hits the Jews. Now, if you're a Jew, chapter 2, verse 17, you're relying on God's law for your special relationship with Him. You boast that all is well between you and your God. And yes, you know what He wants. You know right from wrong because you've been taught from His law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a beacon light for people who are lost in darkness without God. And you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that in God's law you have complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourselves also? You tell others not to steal, do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? And so Paul again points out the need that the Jew has for this gospel. That's the beginning of the book of Romans, where he's got to lay out the need that people have for the gospel. And then in Romans 3.23, he actually kind of comes up with a little conclusion. He says, everybody, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, this is a universal need. The sin of mankind is a universal need. And Jesus is the universal remedy for that universal need is what Paul is saying. And it almost sounds like it's by good works that you get to heaven when you begin to to read this. But it's actually not the case. Uh, In in John chapter 6, for example, we read this. Jesus told them, this is what God wants you to do. You know, this is the work of God. That's how I memorize it in my, my uh, NASB, I guess. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is better. This is what God wants you to do. Believe in the one He has sent. That's the work of God, to believe. That's the work of God. And all these infractions, all these sins that the heathen in Africa are doing, the moralists are doing, and the Jews are doing, just show that they really haven't done the work of God, which is believe in Jesus. Or their lives would not be characterized with those evil deeds. Those evil deeds are just evidence that they don't know Jesus. Those deeds that they do are evidence of their universal need for the universal remedy, which is Jesus. And the one thing, the one work of God, really, is not stopping those bad things and doing good things. The one need, the one work of God is to believe on Him whom He has sent. And that's Jesus, the universal remedy for our universal need. So Paul talks about this. And and then in chapter 3, he begins to answer, well then, how is someone saved? And in verse 24, the one verse that comes right after verse 23 that says, for all have sinned, he says this, yet now God in His gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ, who has freed us by taking away our sins. 
So the moralists, that heathen in Africa, those Jews that have those sins, those sins can be taken away. They can be freed of the bondage of those sins by doing the one thing God requires, and that's to believe in His Son whom He has sent. And so I love this thought, though, that God declares us not guilty. Now think about this. If you are a Christian, in God's eyes, it's not that you don't struggle with sin or haven't sinned or don't have regrets or no, you might not sin today or tomorrow, but the point is God declares you righteous. I like it, put it this way. Jesus died for me, but he also died as me. And Jesus rose from the dead for me, but he rose from the dead as me. You know, Tim Cavanaugh actually has been crucified on the cross. And Tim Cavanaugh has actually been risen from the dead through my faith in Jesus. Because God declares that to be the case. God declares it. He, one fancy word is imputes. He imputes his righteousness onto us when we accept Jesus as our Savior. He just says it. Okay, you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Because there's no other way you're going to be saved. You're not going to stop doing enough bad things. And you're not going to start doing enough good things. I'm just going to have to declare you saved. <laughs> declare you righteous. And I can do that. Because Jesus, my son, died for you. And he died as you. So you now have that universal remedy where you too can have eternal life. Now some of these people will be asking, and we're not going to go through all Romans, but they'll start asking, well, what about the Old Testament? You know, that seems different than what you're now saying, and we're good Jews, and we've had the Old Testament for 2,000 years here, and what about that? And so in chapter 4, anticipating that question next, Paul answers in verse 1 and says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What were his experiences concerning this question of being saved by faith, being declared righteous, doing the one work of God, which was to accept Jesus as your Savior? Was it because of his good deeds that God accepted him? If so, he would have had something to boast about. But from God's point of view, Abraham had no basis at all for pride, no good deed to present to God. For the scripture says it this way, quoting from the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and God declared him to be righteous. So even in the Old Testament, even Abraham, the great father of our, the Jewish faith, he was declared righteous. And Paul is now saying folks today are declared righteous through faith in Jesus also. Abraham didn't know much about God. He didn't know about Jesus per se. He had a relationship with God. He responded to the truth God gave him and God declared him righteous for responding to the truth God gave him in those days. And that's... Um, an exciting thing and the point that Paul makes in chapter 4. And then we come to chapter 5, which is as far as I'm going to get today because it really brings us up to where we're at in our series. You know, the benefits of the gospel. Because Paul's anticipating having, in his mind, addressed these questions. He's anticipating this next question and that is, well, what really is the benefit of the gospel to me? Now, what is the benefit? Now, why should I buy this product, I guess? Or what is the benefit? And Paul begins and answers by saying this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right with God, since we've been declared righteous in His sight, by faith in Jesus, we have 
peace with God. That's the first benefit. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. We have peace with God. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into a place of highest privilege where we now stand. And we confidently, we joyfully look forward to God, to sharing in God's glory one day. That's the second thing. We exult in the peace we have with God. We exult in hope, a hope for glory. We now have that hope. And he goes on in verse 3. We can also do a third benefit here. We can also, uh, when we run into problems and trials, we exult in our tribulations. We exult in our trials now because they now have um, a purpose. We know that they are good for us. We know that they help us learn to endure. And endurance develops strength of character in us. And character strengthens our confident expectations of salvation. And this expectation will not disappoint us, for we know how, now how dearly God loves us. Because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. He gives another reason, and it's the only other one I'm going to give here. And I've got a word that will summarize all these reasons. But another reason I'll give from chapter 5 is verse 11. And so now, not only do we exalt in peace that we have now with God, not only do we exalt in hope we now have through the gospel, we also exalt in our tribulations now, because a loving God loves us and allows them. Verse in Corinthians says, He will not even allow a temptation into our life, a trial in our life, unless He knows we can endure it. And He'll always give a way out of that trial, out of that problem for us. That's the hope and why we can exalt even now in trials. But he also in verse 11 says, And now we rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. You know, we exalt in God Himself. You know, we just exalt in God now. You know, I love this uh, old hymn, and it's, I don't know who wrote it. I love it so much, I actually put a song to it in the piano. But uh, it just says this, Once it was the blessing, these are the words of the hymn. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it's His word. Once uh, uh, His gift I wanted, now the giver only. Once I sought for a healing, now Himself alone. Once it was my working, His it shall be. Once I tried to use Him, now He uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, now for Him alone. All in all, forever, Jesus, I will sing. Everything in Jesus and Jesus, everything. Yeah, we can talk about all these benefits, but I'm going to tell you, that's the greatest one of all. Having that relationship with God. And it's better than any other blessing that you might want to interject. And so God gives us all these wonderful things. And there is one word, you know, for exalting in peace now, because we never had it before. There's one word that combines that exaltation of peace with the exaltation of hope, even in the face of death now. Uh, we don't have to fear death because uh, we're not shackled by the fear of death, held bondage by the fear of death. We have a hope beyond that. Our trials. Uh, the one word is freedom. We are free. I don't know how many of you actually, if asked, were to describe your Christian life with that word. You know, if you were asked, what is the, you know, the essence of your Christian life, you know? How many of us would actually say, I'm free? That is the greatest benefit of the gospel. 
You are free. Free from so many things. Jesus said in Romans or in John eight thirty two, if you know the truth, you will be free indeed. I love the word indeed, because it gives me the idea that you will be free in every way you can be free. You will be free indeed. You know, in every possible conceivable way that there can be freedom in your life. And I'm going to say too, I believe the personal freedom the gospel gives us will lead to political freedoms. You know, even governments where Christianity, even Judaism for that matter, you know, rule the day. Those governments live in freedom. Look in the Middle East today. There's one little light of governmental freedom. That's called Israel. Uh, Judeo background. The United States has been that. Uh, Europe was that. They have turned from God now. Uh, they become a secular continent. And, and as they turn from God, they are turning from even political freedoms. It's an amazing thing, the gospel, how it frees us. And really, you can think of different words to summarize the scripture. You know, you say love, you know, God's love or salvation. I like the word freedom. It's one of these benefits of the gospel. We are now free. For example, you know, where it says we are free, um, you know, it says, for example, where it says we can now exult in peace with God. Uh, but, you know, how often do we not? You know, how often do you come in a room like this and you can think, the guy next to me is a good person, the guy next to me is a, a good Christian, but I'm not. If he only knew me and only knew my hang-ups, only knew my sin, you know, I'm like that heathen in Africa category. I'm not even a moralist or a Jew, I'm just heathen in Africa category. And if you only knew that, it, God does know that. He's their God, not my God. I mean, we can think like this. Have you guys got into swiping messages on your, on your phones, any of you? I'm kind of getting there. But have you ever swiped something and then read it before you sent it? And it's like something that would be totally mortifying if you hit the send button. I mean, I have some examples I can't even share on this stage. And I wish I could because they're really funny. Uh, you know, Julie and I get a lot of laughs out of them. But I'm going to tell you right now, I couldn't even share them with you guys. And by the way, if you do get a text message from me, if there are uh, cuss words and stuff, that's not me. You know, that is definitely, that's definitely this. But it's kind of like that. You know, God is swiping a message to us. And he said, I love you. But for some reason, when we read it, it says, I'm their God, not yours. You know? Well, God says, I died on the cross for you. And then you read his swiped message, and I'm just a bad person. God's not going to say, well done, good, faithful servant, when I show up, you know, and stand before him. You know, we have these self-image issues, don't we, sometimes? Where we think of ourselves like that. And you know why? It's because we're not believing the gospel. You know, what is the gospel, really? I'm just going to review that one more time. Paul kind of summarizes it here. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and He appeared to Peter and the Twelve. Now, that's really the gospel. There's really, I think, of four components to the gospel. And you know what? Your entire Christian life depends on believing these four components. Do you believe this? That Jesus died as you, for you. 
Do you believe this? That Jesus rose as you, for you. Do you believe this? That Jesus lives today because He rose. Do you believe this? That Jesus is going to return. You know what? Our whole Christian life boils down to believing those four things. That's the gospel. And to the extent you can believe those things, you will be free. Because God wants you to be free. But if you go, go around, and even though God's saying, hey, I died on the cross for you, I died on the cross as you, but then when you pull up your telephone and you read it, but God really doesn't like me, you know, God's not that happy with me, or I blew it again, you forget that you've been declared righteous. You forget that He died as you, for you, don't you? It all boils down to not believing this, that He died and He rose for you, as you. You know, and so, but you can, but we need to exalt in this peace that we have now with God. You know, and, or maybe it's, uh, you know, it's, maybe you've just been diagnosed with a terminal illness or a friend has. And, you know, I'll tell you what, um, I've not had that kind of health issue yet. Uh, and yet, I, I, to, to be tested in it, is, talk is cheap, but if I went to the doctor this week and came back with a terminal cancer diagnosis, you know, it would test my faith. But I do know that Paul said, uh, you know, that for me to die is gain, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Uh, if, I, if I would much rather die and be with Christ, for that is much better. I mean, that's the hope we have now. So if we really believe that Christ rose for us as us, Believing this will give us peace, even as we one day face our death. You know, we could go right down the line, though, exulting in tribulation, internal, external. Sometimes I think of the world, the state of the world, and kind of concern where we're going as a world, you know. You listen to the good news on television, it's not good news, you know. It's usually bad news. Then you think of Psalm 2, that in heaven, because He lives, point three there, because Jesus lives, it says he looks down from heaven and he laughs. He laughs at all the kings making all their different plans. Do you believe that Jesus lives and that he looks down from heaven and laughs at the plans of the rulers of the earth? If you do, you'll be free from the shackle of fearing them, from the bondage of, of being concerned with, with something that's out of your control anyway. You know, and so you can go right down the line, internal problems. You know, whatever internal issues you're dealing with, concerns, fears, you know, and you can fill in the blank yourself, but do you believe that because Jesus lives, that, uh, that whatever concern you have, you can pray to Him, and the peace of God will rule in your heart because He hears you, and you know He hears you? Again, if you believe the gospel, you know, that Jesus died, that He rose, that He lives, then you'll find the freedom in the midst of those tribulations and trials, personal concerns that you're facing. You'll find freedom in the midst of those things. How will He who did not spare His Son not with Him freely give us all things? And because Jesus is alive, He'll do that for us. But do you believe it? You know, Jesus, I'm not sure I'll ever get married. And you know, but Jesus is saying, "How will I, who didn't give you, give up my son, not with him, freely give you all things?" And He sends it, and you receive it. But I'm concerned that I'll never get married, or I'm concerned that, uh, you know, for that uh, I, I'll never discover a career that I really need to sink my teeth into, or whatever the issues are. And God has just said, "Hey, just pray to me, 
And there will be a peace in your life, even in the midst of those things. Why? Because I believe in this gospel that Jesus lives. And of course, we believe one day He's going to return. And He'll reward us all in that day. And so, in a word, really, I believe, you know, the... um, you know, the benefit of the gospel, one of the greatest benefits is just in that one word, freedom. And it's just something God wants us to experience. And please, though, when you pull out that cell phone, just read what he says. And, and, and endeavor to believe in these four simple things that he died, he rose, he lived, and he returns. And you'll experience the freedom. That freedom that God longs for you to experience in your life. So that when asked... What characterizes your Christian life more than anything else? One, the word that you could actually use is, I'm free. I'm a free person. And what a joy there is in that. Hey, let's pray and ask God to guide us in this. Lord, we want to thank you for this time and the opportunity to be together. Lord, I don't understand. Just because something's simple doesn't mean it's easy for me to understand. And the gospel is so simple. You died, you rose, you lived, you're coming again. But I know I, I don't uh, always believe it. I don't probably always understand it. Lord, drop the shackles. Help us uh, truly know that because you live, you will reward those who seek you. Lord, I just pray that uh, you help us truly believe that you died and rose as us, for us. And might every problem that we face individually, uh, Lord, fall to the wayside as we set our eyes on the greatest blessing of all, which is is simply knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see you guys today. And uh, I think we've got some donuts left over back there. All right.